and welcome to Minute 13 of the Season 3 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast, where we yippee our way through the 1988 Bruce Willis action flick, Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me again today on this lovely Wednesday in the middle of July, which, if I remember, if I know correctly, I'm actually on my way to Maine today. I'm driving from New York <laughs> to Maine. Hopefully, unless my plans have changed by by that point, but that is the plan. Uh, so joining me today is Alan Sanders of The Wilder Ride. Welcome back, Alan. Hey, buddy. Thanks so much for having me back. Really appreciate uh, the offer to come with you on this journey. Yeah. Well, again, I'm I'm doing my own journey today, which should take me about seven hours. So hopefully, you know, we won't talk for that long. Hopefully, we won't keep people people here for seven hours. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to figure that one out. <laughs> so minute 13 begins with John looking up at Takagi as he ascends a flight of stairs and ends with John getting cut off mid compliment. So <laughs> yesterday's minute ended with uh, McLean looking around, trying to figure out what he, you know, how is he supposed to find his wife in this crowd of executives? And he somehow finds his way and he sees someone who looks like he might have the answer. So he starts walking up the stairs to him and he starts talking to this, this man who he doesn't know who he is and says, hi, I'm looking for, and then he gets cut off. Holly Gennaro. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, ah, you must be John McLean. Joe Takagi. Hi. And then Takagi goes, how's your ride in? And he goes, uh, nice. I have you to thank for that. And he goes, well, it seems the least we could do. He goes, well, it's quite a nice place you have here. He says, it will be if we ever get it finished. There are still several floors under construction. So first of all, this is such a great conversation. You know, you have these two people who sort of know who each other are, but they don't really know who each other are. And right. they, they, they quickly start this, this, this nice conversation between the two of them, which on the one hand, you can say, okay, it's somewhat superficial, but... Again, the two of them have heard of the other person. I'm sure that John has heard stories of Takagi, and I'm assuming that Takagi has heard stories of of John, which we'll we'll get to even later in this minute, where we will talk about how we know that Takagi has heard things about John. But I do you know, think, as far as a superficial conversation, which is, it's very polite, it's very surface level, you do get the sense that they're almost sort of feeling each other out. Where yes. are the where are the authoritarian boundaries and how far can you maybe push something that could be considered maybe less polite? Like I've got you to thank for that. At least we could do, you know, it's, it's a little right. bit of that back and forth, not necessarily rude, but you get the sense of two people who are used to being able to interrogate one, maybe for business, one suspects. Well, both for business. To, it's a different type of yeah, business. <laughs> different kind of business, but they're, but, you know, they're both used to playing that game of learning as much as they can as quickly as possible. Yes, for sure. And I mean, first of all, one of the things that, that, that jumped out at me about this, and it always has whenever I've seen it, you know, Takagi automatically knows that this is John McQueen. So you would think, okay, he's here he's the executive of a company with, let's say, hundreds of employees. We don't know how many employees there really are. This might just be a party for the for the senior executives. I don't know. But he knows by looking out at the crowd that, okay, this is someone who's standing out and is different, and therefore, this must be John McClane. 
you know, it's not one of my employees. I mean, I remember years ago, I was, uh, I was, I was in a, a school and the, the principal of the school would come into to the room. And I think there were, there were 80 of us in the class, something like that. And he would look around and say, okay, where's this guy? Where's that guy? Where's this one? You know, why isn't he here? And I, it always amazed me. I was like, how could he have such great memory to, to look at? I mean, you can look at a group of people and know who is there, but to actually point out who's not there is much more difficult unless you're specifically looking for people and then you're making a list. Okay, well, Alan's not there and Rob's not there. So, you know, it must be that. You know, I, I never understood the, the the tactic used in that memory game, but it always amazed me. And I see that Takagi is more or less doing the same thing here. He's looking out. He knows who all these people are. And, okay, here's someone who's standing out. This must be John McClain. I also think, and you're right, I think somebody who rises to that level of executive, if they don't inhabit that skill themselves, they've got somebody usually right beside them on their right shoulder who does have that skill whispering, yes. okay, this is so-and-so walking up. Remember, you met them last year at this party. Their wife is this name. They have two kids. They're one of them going to college. You know, you've got that person that's whispering. If you don't have that mind, and I told my wife a long time ago, if I ever got into a, a role where I needed to have an advisor, she'd be my advisor because she remembers everybody, everyone's <laughs> name, all the details, and my brain's not wired that way. And I'm like, I know I know you, but my wife's like, oh, yeah, you met him at a party. We were, we were talking about this. The wife's a veterinarian. He's a doctor. I'm like, how do you remember that? <laughs> That's what they do. That's what they do. Now, I will say <laughs> this. If he um, he also, with that, with that said, Holly does have a picture, a family picture at her desk that we'll see eventually. And well, we, saw, we, saw, we saw it already. When, when we saw it two weeks ago when she placed oh, it down. You may have. Down. I did. You I may well, you did too because you've seen the movie. Okay, well, I don't know what <laughs> level of game we're playing with our audience, but I will say, obviously, she's had a picture. And if they've been close uh, executive, you know, client, uh, not to me, executive and um, CEO kind of relationships where she is in his office and vice versa, he would have at least seen his picture a number of times. Right. And if he sent for him or Holly, if I, I've, as I hypothesized yesterday, may have mentioned, you know, maybe we could send a card, make sure he doesn't get lost on his way here. Obviously, the boss here is agreeing is the least we could do is send a car for you. He may have been on the lookout, just kind of keeping an eye when John would show up. Right. He also probably had somewhat of an idea at what time John was supposed to show up. I mean, the plane is supposed to come in at X time and we ordered the limo to pick him up at Y. And it's a 25 minute drive from LAX to here. You know, so it, around now I should be seeing this this guy who's sort of standing out like a sore thumb. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. On the flip side, what would be funny, which we haven't seen, but if any money was changing hands, maybe they were just having an office pool of whether or not he would even show up. Yeah, that could be awesome. That's true. Because <laughs> Holly didn't know. <laughs> you know. That's the funny thing. We'll get that sense later. But yeah, you're right. I think it, it shows everyone was maybe hoping he'd show, not knowing whether or not he would, which means he never committed. Right. Correct. And he didn't call we'll before talk about he got on the plane. So, yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, what's funny is, is that Takagi says it was the least we can do. So is, is he implying there that, okay, Holly is working like a dog. So, you know, we might as well help her out and, uh, you know, send a, send a limo for her husband. Yeah, I, I always took it as he so respected what Holly was doing. And it's a statement. Once again, there's, it sounds like it's, it's idle chit chat on the surface. It's conveying a message. Holly is a respected and super important member of the team. Yes, for sure. 
maybe it was the maybe he's saying it was the least we can do because we wanted her to stay here and continue working. And instead <laughs> of sending her, instead of sending her out to go pick you up at she the airport, begged to leave the office, but we don't believe in letting that happen. <laughs> exactly, it, it reminds me of you know the whole no. thing in Google. <laughs> You know, they claim that the, you know, the, the offices of Google, they have everything there so that people don't, won't miss a minute of work. You know, they have doctors on staff, so you can make a doctor's appointment, you know, or get a, get a, uh, you know, teeth cleaning or whatever it is, you know, so it saves time because you just go to another office, take care of it, and you're in the same building, you know, that type of thing. Seems like a benefit, but it's really to make you stay on the uh, uh, work more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's what it But I do that. think in this case, it's, it's a... I take it as a respectful thing, basically conveying. Yeah. And I think Takagi, in his mind, it is a, a formal uh, compliment to the husband saying it's the least we could do for somebody who we value. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's a, to me, it seems culturally it, it sends a nice message. Right. OK. I agree with you on that. There's no question about that. And then he starts talking about the fact, you know, that they that they're still in the middle of construction, which. You know, on the one hand, he's conveying this information to to John, but on the other hand, the 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 screenwriter is telling us, you know, that there are floors that are not ready yet. You know, <laughs> so I I like that little that little twist there that they're giving us this type of information. Ironically, when they were filming in the building for the shots, the building wasn't yet complete. There were right. uncompleted floors still. <laughs> well, that 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 helped. They did that on purpose. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And then the two of them begin a uh, West Wingish, West Wing esque walk and talk. You know, the two of them continue mm -hmm. walking as you know we're, we're going through a uh, hallway as he starts talking. Takagi says, "Holly went to the vault room to fax some documents. She should be back any minute." So my my first question is, is okay, why do you have to go to the vault room to fax documents? Is that the only place where they have faxes? <laughs> well. I think we're gonna now we can get into uh, some, uh, I guess, a cor corporate level conspiracy. Um, you know, the story that I, I I will say first that likens it to where I'm headed with this is, you know, when Spielberg was initially uh, working with Kubrick to de to develop the script for the movie AI, Kubrick was so worried that someone might stumble on their conversations, he made Spielberg install a dedicated fax line in a closet that he would keep locked. And it was Steven's job to go by that closet from time to time to see if any notes came from Kubrick and vice versa. <laughs> Nobody could stumble across it. It didn't go through the general facts. So maybe the corporate executives back in Tokyo, there's regular faxes for business work, but you go to the vault for stuff that has to go back to the to the head office. OK, I, I never thought about that. And you, you, that that's a great idea. I, 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 I will give you credit for that one now. <laughs> it's a secure bat fax line. <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> so what do you know about fax machines? I know a good bit <laughs> um, I, because I grew up in an industry that when the fax had become really, really popular, um, I remember the first few attempts, um, the companies that tried to do it were so far ahead of the time that they, they lost a lot of money, but eventually caught on and, now it's almost it was one of those things that was so used every day for so many years that it almost in the blink of an eye when you could start doing attachments and emails just suddenly disappeared. Right. OK. Well, when do you think the first fax machine was was created? I believe and I don't know, like prototype versus when you started having ones that were being put on the market. But I think it was actually even in the 70s. 
It was much earlier than that. No, I'm much, sure the protocol. Right. No, so the first telephone transmission was in 1964, but we'll, we'll get there in a second. All right, so first of all, a fax machine is short for facsimile. It's sometimes known as a telecopying machine or a telefax, okay, which is short for a telefacsimile. It's a telephonic transmission of scanned printed material, both either text or images, normally to a telephone number connected to a printer or other output device. Okay, basically it sends a single fixed graphic image, which is converted into a bitmap and is sent over an audio frequency tones, uh, sent over the tele telephone system by audio frequency tones, right? Then the receiving fax machine takes those tones and reconstructs the image and then is able to print out a paper copy of it. Okay, so originally the most most people think of, of fax machines because they were very popular in the 80s and 90s, but the whole idea that, that spawned fax machines started in 1846. There were people, there, there was a Scottish inventor named Alexander Bain who was able to reproduce graphic signs in laboratory experiments. And, you know, he, he actually got a patent in 1843 for his electric printing telegraph. And I mean, we're not going to go into all the, all the, the, the various uh, versions of fax machines, but I mean, they continued from the 1840s all the way till uh, here in, in 1924, scientists at AT&T were able to electronically send 15 photographs via the telephone between Cleveland and New York. I mean, again, there's a lot of stepping stones for the way that things moved over the course of okay, the year. Yeah, for the innovation. Okay. But I, 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 I'm sorry. And I was looking at it from a documentary. I remember seeing, and I thought it was Xerox. That was the yes. company that was trying yes, to yes, make yes, it yes, an yes. office tool like they like they try to popularize it not just having it as a cool innovative thing to do a piece but the ability to literally put a document in on one end and scan it and send it and reproduce it like a copy on the other end yes and you are correct in 1964 the xerox company or xerox corporation created the first commercialized version of a modern fax machine and it was known as an ldx a long distance xerography xerography I don't know how that's pronounced. Right. It was considered relatively small. How how small do you think it was? How uh let, let's let's talk uh weight wise. How many pounds or kilograms do you think it was? This machine oh, well, in the, in nineteen sixty four. Prior to like the hmm, I'm gonna guess probably twenty or thirty pounds. And you would be only halfway there. It was 46 pounds. This was considered a small facsimile machine, 46 pounds or 21 kilograms. Okay. Now it would take, <laughs> it would take six minutes to send one page. <laughs> well, those baud rates weren't quite where they were. Uh, they are no, today. <laughs> no, not at all. So as you mentioned, email and, you know, all the modern and the World Wide web and, and modern technology has pretty much made fax machines almost completely obsolete, but that's not true because there are countries which electronic signatures are not valid on contracts uh, by law. So you have to still fax these, these, uh, these, these various contracts. So there are companies that still use it. There's, it's mostly used in businesses in Japan. 
there it's it's widely used in Japan. So I guess the Nakatomi uh, company corporation is still using it. And it may be interesting. It may be the laws of those countries because of that. I didn't think about it because in the U.S., a lot has been done in the last couple of decades for electronic signature or yeah. putting to file. This is your acceptance by clicking this. You acknowledge this is your signature, so you can do a lot of everything from mortgages to loans and things yeah, you can do sure. with a click. Yeah. And they they did a study, and in 2018, two-thirds of Canadian doctors were still primarily using fax machines to communicate with other doctors, okay? Because most, because most of them see that faxes are considered more safer and more secure than most electronic systems that you have around nowadays. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, it goes okay. back to your story with Kubrick. Kubrick thought the same thing. So, so I guess well, all these Canadian doctors and Kubrick have some a conspiracy <laughs> together as to you know whether it's safe to use a fax machine or not. You know, you have the new tagline: "Just when you thought it was safe to stop sending faxes." Yeah. <laughs> it's safe to fax again. Yes, exactly. So, as they're having their 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 little walk and talk, so. Takagi says to John, well, in the meantime, her office is right back here. And he, they, they walk towards the door of her office, and we get to see the nameplate on the sign, which says H.M. Gennaro, Director, Corporate Affairs. Okay, I don't really know what someone does as the Director of Corporate Affairs. Do you have any idea? Um, well, I can well, only guess based on the title. Because, I mean, when you talk about corporate affairs, talking about the, the business relations with other businesses. So if you're trying to coordinate other business activity, try to coordinate whatever other schedules, I don't – that'd be what I would think. Um, managing basically the affairs of the corporation. Right. No, I, I don't know the answer to that. This was, you know, I, the, this was one thing I couldn't, couldn't figure out. So, so you know, I, I know you're pretty knowledgeable. So I thought maybe you would know what, what someone does in this type of position. I mean, we, we find that later in the movie that she's basically second in command. Okay. You know, I mean, so, it, it usually it's, it's a senior, obviously it's an executive level position. It says so. But it's, um, a, senior, it's, a, senior, it's a senior executive. Right. I was going say it's right. a senior or upper level exec. Um, oh. It may be that it's changed now. It may be that what we, what we call business affairs is now more like the business director right. today. It could be. Director of business. Could be. Now, did, did you notice the, the way they spelled Gennaro on her nameplate on the on the door? Because last week when John needed to push the buttons on the computer system, Gennaro is spelled differently in both, both those places. So in the computer system, yeah. it's spelled G-E-N-N-A-R-O, and here it's G-E-N-N-E-R-O. So huh. I, I guess Holly herself isn't quite sure. You know, <laughs> whether she wants it to be to an spell, E or an A. <laughs> how to spell her maiden name? <laughs> I, I think more or less it's uh, the, the nameplates that they had to uh, get over translated from Japanese to American. Somewhere somebody uh, transposed a, a vowel. Right. But I, I must tell you that, that according to the script, it's with an E. So therefore, the computer system is where they got it wrong. The computer's wrong. Well, there you know, you the computers are always glitchy. <laughs> Completely, especially those computers in 1988. So then the two of them walk into her office, and the first thing that I noticed, and I've never noticed this before, is there's like a little shelf as they enter it, like in the foyer of her, her office, and there are four different 
uh, I guess you could say dolls or sculptures or something, decorations that are there. I've never noticed them before. Really? Okay. You, you never saw the them? Santa Claus? I was, I was always drawn to the Santa because we always had these animated uh, Santas. Uh, we had a Santa and an angel when the kids were a lot littler that we put on each side of the fireplace on the hearth, and they were animated. And they would go through these motions, and when they had the little, like they were holding their little candle, just like the Santa here, which isn't moving, but we could turn ours off and it would just sit there. Right. I thought it was interesting that you've got a a, a, a Tutankhamun like an Egyptian egg That's right. on the shelf. Because right. everything else is Christmas except that. What What are the other two? What would you do? You know what they are? Well, the other one looks uh, looks like a gingerbread house, or at least a snow That's covered right. house. Mm-hmm. Gingerbread and house. The uh, The red and white object to me looked like almost like the like it was missing the head of a cookie jar or something like a Santa cookie jar. I actually think that, I thought that that was like a Scrooge, Scrooge or uh, not Scrooge. Um, uh, what's his name? The Grinch or something like that. It looks somewhat like the Grinch. I, it's hard to tell. But but you, you could be right that it's also some sort of cookie jar. It's, it's yeah, a little it, difficult it, to tell. Although it's yeah. missing its head, but it looks like it could be a Santa. Well, anyways, it's red and white with a little bit of green in front, almost yeah. giving you those. Which again, you've got Christmas, you've got Christmas colors, you got a Christmas snow colored type gingerbread house, and then all of a sudden you got a gold. <laughs> <King Tut>. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. You, do, do you know who King Tut was? King Tutankhamun. I mean, I know of the name, but I don't know a lot about his history. Besides the the, the Batman, uh, you know, villain. <laughs> uh, not that King Tut. <laughs> <laughs> so Tutankhamun. No, Common, not the music group. <laughs> that's right, King Tut. Um, no, that was that was Steve Martin, King Tut, wasn't it? Right. That's right. That's right. right. There's SNL, I think. Yeah, I think it was an SNL mm-hmm. uh, skit. Skit. So uh, Tutankhamun was an Egyptian pharaoh who was the last of his royal family to rule during the end of the 18th dynasty, which was somewhere between 1332 and 1323 BC. And his remains were actually discovered in 1922 by a man named Howard Carter. And his tomb was almost entirely intact. And they found more than 5,000 artifacts in this tomb. And the the find, the archaeological find, actually sparked a renewed interest in ancient Egypt. So people became much more interested because of this, especially because they would see the Tutankhamun mask, right? Mm-hmm. And people would just call him King Tut for short because it was just easier, I guess. So I, I do have a few things to say about the Grinch, but you, but but your knowledge is much better than mine, and that's not the Grinch. So we won't talk about the Grinch. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's we'll skip the Grinch today. <laughs> then you have a uh, gingerbread house, right? Which is, do, do, do you know how to, have you ever made a gingerbread house? We do that as part of our, the you know, we do, a, we, uh, we talked about yesterday, the um, treasure hunt we do Christmas Day, but Christmas Eve is always considered a sort of a game slash activity night. And one of the things we do is a gingerbread house decorating contest that we actually then use Facebook and I think Facebook specifically, we put all of them online and through the course of the evening, everyone who responds to the vote of which one they like the best, that's how we judge who wins and they win a prize. Oh, wow. That is so cool. So we have interactive social media with our kids. <laughs> hey, why not? If it works. But yeah, no, I, love, I, I do enjoy decorating a gingerbread house. It is kind of fun. It brings me back to my, my preschool and kinder, like elementary school days of doing a craft with the kids. Right. Okay. 
there, there is something to that. A gingerbread house is a novelty confectionery, which is shaped like a building that is made of cookie dough, cut and baked into appropriate components like walls and roofing. The usual material is crisp ginger biscuit made of gingerbread from the ginger nuts, right? Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. people use boiled dough, which can be molded like clay to form edible st uh, statuettes or other decorations. I found that to be really cool. I mean, again, me being Jewish, we, we never did the gingerbread house thing. It, it sounds very cool what you do. We, we, we have our own traditions, not on Christmas, but actually we do have our own <laughs> traditions on Christmas. We go out to the movies, but you know, that's because <laughs> <laughs> everything else is closed, right? No, just kidding. No, um, pretty much. You, pretty you much. Now, now where I live, where I live, everything's open on Christmas. That's not a problem. Everything's open. You know, in, but, in Israel, you, you, in Israel, you, nothing you, closes on Christmas. It's the opposite. You can do gingerbread <laughs> with your kids. I mean, it's I not a religious. It. No, thing. not at it's all. More of a, it's more mm -hmm. of a winter decoration thing. Right. Well, we don't have winters here like you do. You know, that's uh, no, true. Things things are a little different. All right. And then the, the the fourth and final thing, which, again, is only the third that we're talking about because there is no Grinch, um, <laughs> is Santa Claus. So, first of all, do you, do you know other names for Santa Claus? Oh, yeah. St. Nick, St. Nicholas, Father Christmas. Uh, you've got all the different uh, – All almost every country has their version of a St. Nicholas or a Santa Claus. Right. And you, you missed the, the – the, Chris Kringle, you know, that, that's the one. Chris that, Kringle, that, yeah, yeah. Sure. There you go. Do you know where the idea of Santa Claus came from? Well, St. Nicholas was the guy uh, in the uh, early Catholic Church who would go and try to provide food or treats to kids in need by putting stuff into their sock stockings if they put them out. Um, and so that's where sort of the tradition started. All right. Okay. And it was mostly known – do you know how it came to America? Um, but depending on what you're asking, I, I don't know how it came specifically. I know how our version of Santa came right. to be. Exactly. So that's, no, that's what I'm talking about. Your version of the, your I mean, version of Santa. our version. I didn't know this until a little while ago, but it was actually a marketing campaign for Coca-Cola. The guy that who, who, who was tasked in New York, I think it was New York, but whatever, whatever ad agency that was tasked with this marketing campaign decided after couldn't find a model decided to just use his own likeness to create now what is considered the American version of Santa Claus. Okay. Very cool. That's not where I was going, but that's, that's also very interesting. So <laughs> okay. I, well, I was what you wanted. No, that you're right. That's fine. That's perfect. Where I was going was where the name Santa Claus actually was first used in the U S press, which was in 1773. Because it was known beforehand as Sinterklaas in from the, the Dutch uh, settlers would, would refer to that. And okay. they, they usually had him dressed as a Dutch sailor with a pipe in a green winter coat. And in 1809, Washington Irving put out a book called History of New York. And he created a parody of Dutch culture in New York. A, sort of as like a Saturday Night Live type of thing, right? And his interpretation of Santa Claus was uh, was done in order to try to tone down the wild Christmas celebration of the era. Because apparently, what would people do on Christmas back back in those days? They would you they would there was there was aggressive home invasions. Okay, there was substantial premarital sex leading to many shotgun weddings 
especially in areas where Puritans were living. <laughs> I am this, many, Puritans. I'm this many years old, first time hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, damn, I should have known that when I was 18. Um, <laughs> Holy crap, I've just been on a lot of Christmas, honey. We got to get caught up on Christmas Eve. <laughs> You know, here I am building bikes and assembling toys. I should have been uh, having a little fun. <laughs> exactly. The, the Puritans were very much opposed to Christmas. So that that's why there were many problems of these shotgun weddings. Uh, and there was also much public display of sexual deviancy. Okay. <laughs> Once again, honey, I missed out on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In 1823, there was a poem that came out called A Visit from St. Nicholas, where uh, caricaturist and political cartoonist Thomas Nast was able to create the idea of Santa's image, right? Now, the the image was a white-bearded man, often with, with glasses, wearing a red coat with white fur collars and cuffs, white fur-cuffed red trousers, red hat with white fur and a black leather belt and boots and he would be carrying a bag full of gifts for children he's usually portrayed as being laughing or jolly and saying the famous words that we're going to get to later in this movie ho 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 i now have a, a machine gun uh <laughs> <laughs> now i have a machine gun too <laughs> No, I don't think he's just do. I think it's now I have a machine gun, but whatever. I don't know. We'll get there. We'll get there. So they they continue walking into the room, and we hear someone at Holly's desk, and we look up and we see Harris Ellis, who we met mm. uh, earlier, and uh, you can obviously see that he is sniffing cocaine <laughs> off of Holly's desk. And he yeah, wait, 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 doesn't he have his own desk? I mean, why? why? <laughs> Although I, this is actually a nice little uh, contextual clue when you look back of him trying to make a move on Holly. Maybe he thought he'd catch her in there. Maybe he thought he could convince her she's not there. So he figured, well, while I'm waiting for her, or who, maybe he thought she's going to be coming back from the vault. I'll have her all to myself. Let me just get myself amped up with a little, just a little line of coke for the evening. Exactly, that's very good. And I, I like the fact that 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 you know. Coke is basically Ellis because later on when, when he's, you know, trying to make his business deal, they bring him a can of, they bring him a glass of Coke. You know, they, they purposely, that is, which is after he sneaks a, a little spoonful of Coke to get ready for that meeting. Yes, completely. So he's, he's mixing Coke with Coke. You know, yeah, I, that, that's always been like the bad dad joke where you go, Hey, I tried sniffing Coke once. I just couldn't get the can up my nose. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he quickly gets up. You hear him sniffing and he goes, I, I was just making a call. And this was the nearest phone. <laughs> right. Oh, it's such a blatant lie. And once again, little touches of set dressing when he's rapidly putting his little spoon and uh, little uh, box or bottle away into his pocket. There's a little bit of white left on the desk. Yeah. Just enough to be perceptible. That he manages to go, well, I better wipe that as I stand up. Look at all in one motion, like almost as if he's done it before. Yeah, exactly. He's, he doesn't want to get caught on these types of things. So what do, what do you know about cocaine? <laughs> Ironically, Coca-Cola had some of it initially yes, when the it gold, uh, came out. 
that that's sort of where it came. That's where the Coca came from in the thing. But we're not talking about Coca Cola. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait a few months till we talk about Coca Cola when when we'll get there. You know, we'll we'll talk about this the other type of Coke at this point. So what what do you know uh, about? Was it? Cocaine developed. Now I'm stretching back to my early psychopharmacology days in my degree, which I have never put to use after spending all that money for it. Well, you Wasn't see, now, cocaine now you have an opportunity to put it to use. <laughs> to help re- get you off of an addiction to heroin or mor- or morphine? Um, I do remember hearing that, yes. Yeah, I think – and it was uh, – I think initially people didn't think it was addictive. They thought it was, it was okay because I believe it was um, – Oh, uh, Freud, uh, uh, the, the, the psychologist Freud said, uh, you know, when they realized cocaine was addictive later, he said, I was able to stop uh, cocaine once I realized that I, I, it wasn't good for you, but I never could stop smoking cigars. Exactly. <laughs> so basically, cocaine is a tropane, alkaloid, and stimulant drug obtained primarily from the leaves of two different coca species that are native to South America. Cocaine is actually one of the drugs that's able to cross the blood-brain barrier because it has a proton-coupled organic cation antiporter because, you know, most of the time things don't go into your brain. You know, the, right. the, the, you know the, the, the body has a system that, that keeps toxins from getting up into the brain. You know, you can't pass this... Uh, blood-brain barrier, and there are very few things that can get through it, but unfortunately, cocaine is one of them that can. <laughs> and well, I yeah. go back to the old Bill Cosby routine. If you uh, remember the, the comedy routine called Bill Cosby himself. Yes. He said, um, cocaine is good because it, it, it enhances your personality. <laughs> and he says, great. Well, what if you're an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. So cocaine is very addictive due to its effect on the reward pathway in the brain. Mm-hmm. Right. So like most uh, stimulant narcotics, it, it develops uh, – uh, you feel really good, really positive. Yes. It does mm-hmm. give you a sense of like, oh, I'm on top of the world. Of yes. course, my heart's racing at about 200 miles, 200 beats per minute. But hey, I feel great. Right. So most people get addicted to it because dependency is very likely – once you take it numerous times, because there's a, there's very difficult drug with, withdrawal, but some of the the symptoms of or the effects of withdrawal could be depression, decreased libido, decreased ability to feel pleasure, and subjective fatigue. So I guess you have to do this on 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 the Christmases from the 1700s. That would make things a little easier. Yeah, when you're trying to on a cocaine withdrawal, right? In 2018. How many people in the world do you think still use cocaine or are addicted to cocaine? I mean, I don't know. How do you want to differentiate? So 19 million people were using uh, cocaine in 2018. 0.4% of all people in the, in the world aged 18 to 64. The highest number of people who were using cocaine at the time were living in Australia or New Zealand and followed very closely by people in North America. So, yeah, it's uh, slightly a problem. <laughs> I'm assuming that the numbers in 2022 are not that different. Different, You know, they're, they're relatively close. I had heard, and I don't know if this is right, because I know cocaine went away f- or dropped because of its cost in favor of crack cocaine, which I think they consider separate. We'll, we'll get there in but a second. I thought, 
Because I thought I heard cocaine usage kind of was making a sort of chic comeback. Or is that heroin? Maybe I, it's heroin, I'm thinking. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't know enough about I, drugs. I will tell you, <laughs> I, I'm honest. I am not steeped in drug culture. Neither am I. <laughs> I've never been fascinated by it. I've never been tempted, um, especially any of the any Did hard it. drugs. I, I'm Did fine it. with a cocktail. I've always enjoyed a beer, a wine, liquor of all flavors and sorts. I'm usually pretty good. Right. Okay. So there are three different ways that people take uh, take in cocaine. Uh, one of the ones is obviously what we just saw with Ellis, which is known as nasal insufflation okay which is mostly known as either snorting sniffing or blowing okay it's okay. it's ab absorbed through the nose and the lining of the nasal passages and usually when when people snort cocaine it takes about five minutes for it to, to kick in but okay. once it, but it, it actually the the reason most people use this type of form of snorting cocaine is that it's the has the longest duration of its effects, which usually can last anywhere between an hour and, and an hour and a half. Oh, okay? it doesn't last as long as I thought it does. That's uh, okay. Uh, again, this know. is this is information from Wikipedia. So you know, I ever decided I, I'm not talking to, uh, from experience. <laughs> I say, same with me. Let's say you know, I guess I decide a, a night of debauchery is in order, you know, go back and celebrate the old fashioned Christmas. Yes. Exactly. Then the second method is injection. There are people who actually inject uh cocaine which i'd never even heard of i always thought that's just heroin that people inject and the biggest side effect of injecting yourself with cocaine is that most people have tinnitus or audio distortion for two to five minutes after injecting them with with this which oh, is, wow. okay. so it's colloquially known as a bell ringer okay yeah <laughs> so and then the third third way of doing this is for people to actually smoke it which is what became known as crack cocaine. Crack cocaine is actually smoking. The, the reason that most people prefer to smoke their cocaine is that it takes anywhere between three to five seconds for it to actually start affecting you. Um, but I also thought crack cocaine was much cheaper. They were, you can cut it down and make it a lot smaller so you're not, it's not as expensive as cocaine okay. itself. It could be. Yeah, for sure. But again, part of the whole idea is, is that it has a the very reason it's so and it's so even more addictive, addictive. because yeah. of the process of chemically manufacturing it, that it's being a non-natural substance, being a more chemically made substance, instantly creates a, a, a an addiction. Some people can be hooked even after one use. Right. But what they also say is is that this when you smoke it, the effects usually only last between two and ten minutes. Which I guess also makes it more more addictive because you constantly want to, you know, get get this uh, feeling back. Keep hitting the crack pipe. Apparently. So yeah, Ugh. that's all we got for for for, for crack today. <laughs> we're we're done with crack today. <laughs> and at this point, Takagi pretty much ignores what Ellis has been doing and says to well. He says, sorry, he says to Ellis, he goes, uh, well, I want you to meet John McClane, Holly's husband. And then he, he says in a different tone of his voice, Holly's policeman. Now, I got to tell you, every time I've seen this movie, I always thought he says Holly's policeman husband. I only, this is the first time I noticed that he doesn't say the word husband again. 
Yeah, because it just says Holly's policeman. Mm. He introduces Ellis and says, Ellis is in charge of international development. And the entire time, Ellis is sniffing. You keep hearing him sniff. <laughs> and then he says, heard a heck of a lot about you. And then John looks at him and goes, miss him. <laughs> that I love that he it shows once again as smooth and as slick as Ellis thinks he was the cop didn't miss a second knows exactly what he was doing well especially when you have a black beard know. you're snorting well, white also, things with a black beard <laughs> yeah I don't know if you see anything on Ellis though do you I, I didn't but I'm I'm not a, an astute policeman as as but uh, that's John what is. I love about that's what I love about McLean because it lets us know, and he's not afraid to let the person know, by the way. Not just that he observed it. He's willing to say, miss some. Like, I know what you did. I, I, you I, know what? Like I think you can see now. it. I think you can see there's a little white on his nose, on the side of his nose. Okay. I think so. I, I could be wrong. It's very hard to, so, to so pause it as it fact, moves along. The fact that he shares the, that knowledge and just completely walks past it. Yeah. Uh, going back to Takagi, though, when you said he said Hollis is a policeman. Um, Holly's I, policeman. I, Holly's policeman. When yeah. I hear it, you're right. I've always heard, either filled in Holly's husband's a policeman. Like I I hear husband in my head. Yes. Or um, like Hollis, he's a policeman. Like like he was trying to say Ellis and then said Holly instead of Ellis. Ellis is a policeman. Like, yeah. hey, uh, he's a policeman. He's just sort of adding a is, yeah. you know, kind of slurring the word together. But yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that's just because the actor missed the word. No, there, there is no word. The no, that, uh, well, we'll get there. We'll get to the script in a little while. How they how they talk about that. But it it's just it's just amazing. As you know, we mentioned yesterday, how many times each of us have seen this movie, and we've just always automatically, you know, uh, auto corrected Takagi, right, <laughs> without right. even noticing it until this point. Now. Almost 20 years ago, I was actually a policeman. I was a policeman for for a few months here here in Israel. Uh, I hated it, and you know it was it was a dream of mine. And you know I quit my job and and went and and joined the police force. And you know I really had such high hopes for it. And I was just uh, pretty much disillusioned pretty quick pretty quickly, and and got out of it. And you know I, I've never regretted it. I actually, you know, I'm glad that I did it. It's the idea that you can try something that you always want to do. And if it doesn't work out, you can still move on with your life. You, I'll, I'll never have the idea in my mind saying, oh, I wish I could try it. You know, if only I would have, you know, followed my dream at that point. I followed my dream, didn't go where I wanted to be, went back to my other thing. And here I am doing a podcast, you know, <laughs> that's, that's my latest dream, you know. And I'm on my third season of a podcast, too. But the point I wanted to make about the fact of being a policeman is I remember in the police academy, one of the one of the things they that they taught us was that a policeman has more power than a judge. OK, and the reason for that is if someone comes to court, the judge has to use the law in order to make his judgment as to whether the person is guilty or whether the person is innocent. A policeman, on the other hand, can see something happen and decide not to do anything about it. A policeman can pull someone over for speeding and not give them a ticket. If you come to court, you know, and the judge finds you guilty, then you're, he's going to give you a fine. You know, the judge cannot say, oh, well, you're guilty, but I'm going to not give you a fine. He'll, he has to give you some sort of punishment. 
A policeman doesn't need to give you that punishment. He has the ability to, you know, make the decision of of letting you go scot-free, letting you off with a warning or whatever it is. So I've always seen what John does here in that in that light where he's saying, OK, you know, I've seen it, but I'm not doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I, we add to it. It's not his jurisdiction. He's right. probably not on of duty. Course. I mean, what's he going to do? But that's why I love the fact that he calls it out anyway. Right. Exactly. That's his personality. You know, he's calling it out for sure. And then, and you know what I love about it is it by calling it out, not only does it give us an insight, a continued insight very quickly into the personality of John McClane, we also get a sense of Ellis. He He's so used to getting away with everything. Then it makes you wonder, does he just fool himself all the time? Does everybody know he's full of <laughs> most of the time, but they never call him on it? It's John McClane who calls him on right. it. Right. Well, I think it's, it's, it's the same thing with what we saw two weeks ago when he was hitting on Holly, you know. Holly wasn't calling him on it. She was she was pushing him away and saying this isn't going to happen. But, you know, what he was doing is definitely sexual harassment. I mean, she could have easily gotten him fired. I mean, I don't know what the laws were in 1988 in in L.A. at the time, but, you know, she definitely could have complained Mm -hmm. for I mean, the way that he was acting is, you know, today (laughs) he'd be a Hollywood (laughs) producer. Um Hey, we're casting a movie. Come on up to my hotel. There you go. <laughs> so Takagi then tries to quickly change the, the the conversation, and he goes, "Well, uh, could I get you anything? Food, cake, some watered down champagne?" <laughs> and John's response is, "No, thank you. I'm fine." And then John says, "You throw quite." And then the minute actually ends. So we're, we're going to have to wait until tomorrow to find out what what he throws quite. You know, does he mm-hmm. throw a football quite well? Does he? <laughs> what is it? What is he throwing? Who knows? <laughs> so I want to ask you to do something quickly here before we wrap up the minute, because I don't know if you noticed in terms of imagery. Because we saw the Santa Claus, we saw the gingerbread house, we even got some Egyptian mythology. The shot right around forty-two seconds when Ellis is walking up and Takagi's kind of leaning in, getting ready to. Uh, leave a word out of his sentence that we all mentally fill in. Okay. You notice that on the wall, it's directly a between Takagi and John McClane, we have a, a shadow of a cross. Yes, but you can see the beam. It's it's you know it's the it's the window pane. It's it's a shadow of, of the is. window pane. But wow, it cannot be not observed in the presence of both Santa, and then you've got on the other side. You've got a, a Japanese official that we're going to have a comment made later about the holiday of Christmas itself. That's true. And yet there is at least an imagery of the religious aspect of Christmas to go along with the commercial. Wow. That's great. I, I wouldn't have noticed that. that that's, not, that's not everything I look for. But, yeah, it's definitely there. You're right. Great, great pickup on that that's one. I'm here for yeah, and you're testing my trivia brain, and for looking for imagery on screen. Okay, why not? That, that's what we're here for. And <laughs> so, towards the end of this minute, what I like also is that John, you know, when he passes Ellis, he goes over to to Holly's desk, and he actually picks up one of the pictures on her desk of their son, and is looking at mm-hmm. John Junior. You know, which which it, it's nice. It shows you know that maybe he's looking and saying, "Wow, my son has grown up a lot in six months since I haven't seen him," or. You know, or, ooh, I'm going to see my son in a little while. You know, it could be many different things. But he doesn't notice the fact right. that, that his picture is is face down. 
No, not yet. No, no. I, I, and what's he amazing never notices here, it. Right. He doesn't ever. Right. Right. Um, what what I know, what I like about what John McClane or the actor in this case, Bruce Willis's choices. It's like he's still investigating. He can't let the detective part. He's got a natural curiosity. He's going to look at things. He's going to pick things up. He's going to observe. It's like he can't turn the. Hey, let's put this into the back of our minds for the rest of the movie. He can't turn off being a cop. Right. That's true. That's very true. So the the script has a few little discrepancies here. They explain things a little more. So first of all, there's an extended conversation at the beginning of this minute between uh, John and Takagi. So because McLean comes up to him and says, excuse me, I'm looking for her. And he goes, Holly Gennaro. And then McLean actually says, yeah, how'd you know? So Takagi's response is, I've spent half my life on airplanes. I can recognize someone who just got off one. I'm Joe Takagi, Mr. McLean. I have something to do with this company. Okay. Now, first of all, I like the fact that he calls him Mr. McLean as opposed to John McLean. It, he's much more formal. You know, it goes back to the to the idea of Japanese businessman, you know, being more formal and stuff like that. And then, you know, he sort of makes a joke by saying, well, I, I have something to do with this company. You know, I'm the CEO or whatever. I don't remember what, what Takagi, maybe he's a CFO. But, uh, you know, he's he's very high up in it. And so McLean goes, so I've heard. And then Takagi smiles, leads the way as they approach Holly's office. McLean notices the name on the door is Gennaro. And then Takagi mentions that she went to the to, to the vault room, and then they enter the room, and they see Ellis sniffling and snorting. And, you know, he gives this quick lie as to that he was just making a quick call. And then Takagi goes, Ellis, this is John McLean, Holly's policeman. Ellis is in charge of international acquisitions. See, they changed it from acquisitions to development. And then McLean shakes hands with Ellis and looks up at him and says, that explains the recent deal with Bolivia. And that's Yeah, his... I think that joke would have gone over most people's Exactly. I, I had to read it three times in the script to try and catch that that's what they're saying with, you know, McLean saying you missed the spot. So it, Right. Yeah. So it says uh, Ellis much, reacts. Much better to say it the way Bruce Willis does. Yeah, for sure. No question about that. It says Ellis re reacts, runs a checking finger under his nose. And then McLean turns to him and says, relax, Ellis, I'm off duty. But I, I like the way that it's in the, the final script much better. No question about that. Plays much better on screen. Yeah, yeah. the novel doesn't have any of this uh, in there, so there's nothing really to go there. So every Wednesday we have a segment called Hans Hump Day, where, <laughs> All right. where my guests will give their top five um, performances by Alan Rickman. So, what have you got okay. for us? All right. Now, you, you just said performances, but I thought the note you sent me said top five Alan Rickman movies. And to me, that's different. I picked movies I love where Alan Rickman is in it versus maybe movies where Alan Rickman was wonderful, but the movie wasn't so great. So, I went with movies. Oh. Is that okay? Uh, it's fine. I mean, if if you want to quickly change that, you can too. No, no, because I mean, it depends on which one you I'll, prefer. I'll, ex I'll explain with the with my number three, but I I will do a reverse countdown. My number five, this is a guilty pleasure movie. My wife and I both love it. We both saw it in the theaters before we ever met one another, and it's one of our go to movies: Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. A spoon. You cannot be a sheriff of Nottingham. You cannot beat it. 
even if it's anachronistic with some of the use of language and phrases, the screen just comes alive every time Alan Rickman is there. Yes, for sure. Number four, Galaxy Quest. I'm a Star Trek fan at heart, and to me, Galaxy Quest was always meant to be a love letter to Star Trek fans, and I still love that movie to this day. Yes. Number three, and this is where I was getting at performance versus movie, but my number three favorite movie that has Alan Rickman in it would be Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. To me, the third Harry Potter movie is still probably the best story of all of them, which is why it's my favorite movie. If I had to say acting, if I had picked the Harry Potter universe, because let's face it, Professor Snape is a huge part of it. Yes. It's hard to argue between the Half-Blood Prince, number six, which is really about Snape's, or uh, the Deathly Hallows part two, where we learn exactly what Snape has been up to this entire yes, series. for sure. It's phenomenal acting. But in terms of movie, I still think Prisoner of Azkaban is a better film. Yes. Number two, one of my other all-time favorite Christmas movies. We watch it at least once a year and at the holidays. The English schmaltzy rom-com Love Actually. <laughs> other Hollywood has tried to mirror or, or replicate the, the formula that was done in Love Actually, and they all suck. The only one I like that follows that kind of everyone has a story, but they all somehow are intermingled is Love Actually. And I cannot I cannot get enough of that movie. We'll probably watch it at least two other times in the year and then definitely every every single holiday. That's one of the Christmas movies we go to. Right. And then number one, without a doubt, should be of no surprise if you're listening to this podcast, my all time favorite Christmas film. Die Not Hard. Christmas film. It's an all time, your all time favorite Alan Rickman film. <laughs> it's it is my favorite Christmas movie, and okay. we watch Die Hard multiple times a year. But it has been a tradition, even with my kids. Last year was the first year that there was not a single kid here that when I watched the movie. So I ended up watching it by myself. But almost always, at some point, one or more of my girls would watch the movie with me, uh, leading up to either Christmas Eve or leading up to Christmas Eve. Right. Okay. That makes sense. All right, great. There's my list. There you go. Thank you very much for that. Do you want to tell everyone how they can get in touch with you, Alan? Sure, we'll make it quick. You can just do a search for The Wilder Ride. That's both podcast, website, social media. Everything's the same. It's about Gene Wilder, at least our first two seasons. We did become a wilder podcast in the sense of being wild by changing it up a couple of times. We turned it into more of a talk show format uh, for a couple of years and have been on an extended hiatus this season, but... Uh, my co-host, Walt Murray, says we are going to bring it back once he gets back from his four-month-long or now five-month-long honeymoon. <laughs> we'll eventually, his wife will get tired of his shenanigans and allow him to start recording again. I think maybe you should tell him about what how they used to celebrate Christmas. Uh. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I, he's doing that now. He's doing that every that's day. I'm going to tell my wife how that's they used to celebrate <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> All right. And finding me is very simple. You just do a quick search for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. And you can find me on my website. So until tomorrow, yippee ki yay. yippee ki -yay.